You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast with me, Ashley McNeil, as your special presenter. Welcome back to the final episode in Aspie's special series on Australia-Indonesia relations since the fall of Suharto. In this episode, Dr. David Engel and Hilary Mansour revisit the themes explored throughout the series. They reflect on the experiences of the ambassadors who were interviewed and how these lessons can impact our future relationship with Indonesia. Welcome to the last episode of this podcast series. We'd like to say thank you to all the former ambassadors for participating and sharing their insights and experiences with us. First, I think I'd like to begin with a confession of sorts. The germ of the idea of a podcast series built around interviews of Australia's ambassadors came from Aspie's head, Peter Jennings. As I thought about it further, I envisaged this series partly as a record of Indonesia's change over the last 23-odd years since Suharto's fall in 1998. And that period just happened to coincide with my own experiences in working on Indonesia, including on two occasions in the embassy. And I think it does that to an extent. In particular, it tracks the direction of democratic governance in Indonesia, not just the flowering of democracy after Suharto's ouster, but also the noticeable slide in liberal democracy over the last decade or so. And that started in the presidency of Cicillo Bambang Yudhiyono, but it has steepened under Joko Widodo, or Jokowi. And it also touches on that perennial in Indonesian politics and society, the place and role of Islam, as well as the contemporary issues of COVID and climate change and their impact on Indonesia. And several of our guests talk about Indonesia's economy and development. But the main purpose was to examine how all of this affected Australia's relations with its northern neighbour. And who better to discuss this with than Australia's ambassadors to Indonesia over that period, particularly by focusing on critical moments in the relationship. Having seen this story unfold up close and been part of all those critical moments from time to time, I thought I had a pretty good handle on all of this. But it has become clearer to me as we've done this podcast and what a podcast has actually revealed is just how fundamental the shift in the character of Australia-Indonesia relations has been and why. And the title of this podcast series captures this. Well, I think a lot of the listeners and people who are interested in the Australia-Indonesia relationship are already quite familiar with the very well-known major flashpoints of this relationship. A lot of school students are told, you know, bombs, boats, barley. Specific events pop up in people's minds, but the goal of this podcast was really to get a cohesive view of the detail around these flashpoints, but also to bring them all together and be able to look and analyse what these larger shifts might have been over this time. And I think we've been able to flesh out through these recollections of these ambassadors what it was like for those involved at the centre of it and come to some deeper observations and reflections on their time and on these major events and on the relationship itself. So it was fantastic to hear their reflections. It brings forth some rich new observations and it's given us an opportunity to view the bilateral relationship in a new light. And now in this episode, we can explore this shift in character of the relationship from one which primarily responded to crises to one which now has more stability and ballast than before. So on that note, let's just go back over some of those things, particularly I think the first eight years of this 23-year period. And 
this period brings to mind a quote attributed to the former British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan. Apparently, he was asked what the most troublesome problem he'd had to solve was, and he responded, events, dear boy, events. Well, Macmillan probably never said any such thing, but there were plenty of events in the Australia-Indonesia relationship over those years and many subsequently. Many were important in their own right, and they cropped up in the course of the series, such as the granting of refugee status to a group of Papuans, the cattle trade ban, the spying allegations, and the various drugs-related issues, which ended up in the execution of two Australians. But over the first six or so years of our period... At least five events rose to the level of truly critical moments, which is extraordinary for any bilateral relationship. Fall of Suharto. And the first of those events was the fall of President Suharto himself and the sudden end to his new order regime. He'd been in power for 32 years since the tumultuous and violent events of 1965 and 66, which led to the end of Sukarno and his old order. John McCarthy was ambassador at the time, and he said while he had expected Suharto's time in office would come to an end during his tenure, he and others in the embassy hadn't anticipated him to leave in so precipitate a manner in the wake of Indonesia's financial collapse and the consequent mass political unrest. His job at that point, from August 97 effectively until the end of 99, was, quote, principally about crisis management. I think what we're all thinking in the embassy is how do we get to the next step, end quote. The central point John made was just how uncertain things were. We had established a solid and predictable relationship with Indonesia. And that, you know, was, is very important. Predictability in international relations is a great asset some of the time. I think our sense was that once Suharto left there would be some very interesting changes, some of which we would welcome, including the greater democratisation of Indonesia, but that there would be a whole lot of uncertainty and that we would have to find our way through that uncertainty in really a new era. And so that was you know, what I think preoccupied us. East Timor and relations with Australia. Another critical moment that in a sense followed directly from Suharto's ouster, was the separation of East Timor, thanks to a decision by his successor, President Habibi, to offer the East Timorese a vote on self-determination. As John stressed, this was not something Australia had wanted, let alone planned for. And again, as John said, Australia found itself reacting to events and eventually managing its way through a crisis, including a crisis in the bilateral relationship because of Australia's involvement in the events leading up to Habibi's decision and its violent aftermath. As he said, quote, It was a sense of going from one step to another and trying to make the best fist you could of some very, very confusing developments and some very confusing facts and trying to work those broadly in the direction in which you wanted to go. Both John and Rick Smith, in particular, reflected on what this meant for Australia-Indonesia relations over that period and for years after. They noted that Indonesian interlocutors often wanted to put East Timor behind them once it had separated. And as both said, some even were prepared to acknowledge Indonesia's failures in the former province. But Indonesians were preoccupied with their own politics at the time, including other problems of separatism in places like Aceh and Maluku. And as Rick put it, quote, there was 
little interest in replaying the Timor issue. That said, John cautioned us not to assume that people in Indonesia have simply forgotten the experience of East Timor and of Australia's perceived role in it. I think particularly in military circles, there is always a lack of comfort, a certain suspicion about what Australia's actions Australia might take in the future. And that particularly relates to Arian Jaya. And so I don't think we can just forget or we can just say to ourselves, look, Timor's over, the Indonesians aren't concerned about it anymore. I don't think that's the case in their, in, in their thinking, particularly in military circles. I think there is that sneaking concern that something else might happen. And uh, we have to, I think, be conscious of that. The Tampa incident and people smuggling. The third critical moment in those years was the Tampa incident in August 2001. This was not the first instance of people smuggling to Australia out of Indonesia, and it would certainly not prove to be the last. But it marked a point in the debate on how Australia would combat people smuggling, which is in some ways still setting the tone for so much of what's followed. And Rick, the ambassador at the time, recalled that Indonesians initially thought the issue was just about Australian politics and said they were, quote, slow to understand that people smuggling was bad for Indonesia, end quote. In fact, it did present problems for Indonesia, including social unrest, corruption and the abuse of Indonesia's national sovereignty. But in the end, as Rick noted, Indonesians would tell him that, quote, it might be a problem for Indonesia, but look, this is a big country with a lot of problems and this one doesn't rate as highly as it might for you. And it's frankly hard to argue against that. However critical the issue was for the Howard government at the time, for Indonesians, it was indeed a minor issue compared to the many major ones they were dealing with at that time and many times subsequently. Now, it eventually grew to become more serious for Indonesians as asylum seekers made their way through the archipelago and paid criminal networks to do so. And as Bill Farmer, who replaced David, and his successor, Greg Moriarty, both recalled, they later found themselves making the same points to Indonesians about the two nations' shared interest in combating people smuggling when the problem again flared after 2007. But it was often a very difficult message to get across. The Bali bombing and counter-terrorism. Turning to the fourth critical moment, the Bali bombing on October 12, 2002. What some listeners might not appreciate is that this attack was by no means the first in Indonesia, as there had already been many across the archipelago in the two years prior. But the Bali attack was the first time that Australians were directly exposed to it. Both Rick and David Ritchie were directly affected by terrorism during their time. In Rick's case, the attack came as he was planning to leave the post, but he stayed on to manage the initial aftermath in Bali. Both he and David, who'd come in with then-Minister Alexander Downer almost immediately after the attack, recounted the extraordinary levels of cooperation that came out of the tragedy and that, in key ways, went some way towards restoring a relationship damaged by East Timor. This is how Rick put it. I left Indonesia three weeks or whatever it was later thinking a couple of things. First, Bali is now a part of our story in Indonesia. 88 Australians and three permanent residents from Australia died there. Many others were scarred for life. Many families were affected by it. Bali was now part of the story of Australia and Indonesia. And the second 
thought I had was that even at that stage, the level of cooperation between the federal police in particular and the Polri was developing extraordinarily. And I saw that as likely to be a good thing, not only in resolving the issues still relating to Bali, but in the future management of the terrorist problem in Indonesia. And it's a point that David echoed when he described what followed as a very positive story in that both sides were ready quickly to cooperate to find out who had committed the atrocity and ensure it never happened again. I mean, we often talk about the number of Australians and others who were killed in the Surrey Club bombing and other things, but of course a very large number of Balinese and other Indonesians were killed in that. And the bombing had in fact completely destroyed the economy of Bali. So they had a stake in it, they wanted to find who was responsible they wanted to clean it up. They wanted to make sure that those who were responsible were brought to justice. They knew they needed some help. For our part, we offered that help readily. We, we were very keen to do it. And still on terrorism, I'm sure the listeners were as struck as we were by David's account of his own experience of the Australian embassy bombing on the 9th of December 2004. His reflections on Indonesia's handling of terrorism bear repeating. Let me just say... The Indonesians did an excellent job in fighting terrorism. So compared to many other countries in the world, the effort they put in with our help, but with their primacy, was absolutely excellent. And they did a very, very good job. And what we discovered was we were allies. We and the, you know, the vast majority of Indonesians were allies because the the kind of radical Islam that, well, radical extremists, I I don't even want to call it Islam, who were involved and had been through various Islamic boarding schools, Pesantran and others, were a very small minority, but they were a challenge to, to Indonesia's version of Islam and the way Indonesia operated. I mean, leaving aside the terrible tragedy of it all and our involvement in it, it was something that also strengthened the relationship between the two countries very dramatically. Tsunami and changes to Indonesian democracy. The fifth critical moment, I think, was the tragedy of the Indian Ocean tsunami of 26 December 2004, which killed perhaps a quarter of a million Indonesians, especially in Aceh. Again, David's words warrant hearing again. I remember asking people in the embassy, have you heard anything from Western Aceh or southwestern Aceh? And people kept saying, no, no, we haven't, but Bandar Aceh, the capital, has been wiped out. And they said, no, no, but have you heard anything from this part of Aceh? And the answer was no. Not one single thing had anybody heard. And the reason for that was because they were all dead. And this was a horrifying thing. But then what emerged was another example of the two countries coming together to address a terrible tragedy and in a way that served to bolster bilateral ties to a level scarcely imaginable after the East Timor crisis. Both David and Bill Farmer reflected on this at some length, especially the Howard government's decision to give Indonesia a billion-dollar aid package, half of it in direct grants, and to cooperate so closely and quickly to alleviate the suffering from the disaster and to help Indonesia recover. As David recalls on hearing this from Prime Minister Howard, Indonesia's then-president, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono, with tears in his eyes, said he would never forget it. And despite various subsequent events we'll get to, 
I don't think he actually ever did. And in some respects, those tears symbolised the key shifts in Australia-Indonesia relations, a shift that I believe was largely down to SBY's 10 years in power from 2004 to 2014. During the six years before those tears, the so-called Reformasi period had been turbulent and unsteady. And SBY's three immediate predecessors had a lot to do with that. As John McCarthy said about BJ Habibi, he was an eccentric who, quote, tended to make decisions on the run so that you never knew what was going to happen next. But major changes occurred during Habibi's mercurial tenure. This, as John said, very unusual man had achieved a great deal. But you didn't get that feeling on a day-by-day basis. And as Rick observed... Well, firstly, of course, Indonesia was, to use the word, a very vibrant democracy, a relatively new one, and political speak was alive and well. Uh, Everybody was a critic of everybody else, and there was plotting and planning and conspiring going on, very open political scene and refreshingly democratic but unrefreshingly confusing. Like Habibis, the terms of Abdurrahman Wahid and Megawati Tsukano Putri were indicative of this unrefreshingly confusing vibrancy and fashioning a closer bilateral relationship would have been hard enough in that environment, even without the complications of East Timor. Which doesn't mean relations under those leaders didn't move forward at all. Besides the post-Bali bombing cooperation, the period saw Gustur break the Indonesian duck when he visited Canberra in the dying days of his presidency, becoming the first Indonesian president ever to do so. But SBY was very different. He'd risen to become an army lieutenant general, but very much in the mould of a reformer when it came to civil military affairs. He'd served in the cabinets of his two immediate predecessors, including as coordinating minister for political and security affairs at the time of the Bali bombing. He'd trained in the US, where he took the opportunity to also obtain an MA in business management and served abroad as a UN peacekeeper. And all that had given him a distinctly international perspective and a more sophisticated understanding of the complex political and geopolitical environment that Indonesia was finding itself than his predecessors did. And while he had a a military background, he didn't harbour the ultra-nationalist sentiments that made some senior military officers deeply suspicious of Australia, especially after East Timor. On the contrary he had a greater appreciation of Australia's relevance and importance to Indonesia. And that, I think, already made him more predisposed to advancing the bilateral relationship through practical cooperation, even before events like the Bali bombing and the tsunami brought home the benefits of a close partnership between the two nations. And what this series underscores is just how much this helped change the tenor of the bilateral relationship from one characterised by crisis management to one characterised by a steady stream of bilateral agreements and structures, firstly under SBY and more recently under Joko Widodo. Bill Farmer's tenure coincided with the earliest manifestation of this trend, though, as he pointed out, this didn't just happen straight away because of SBY's gratitude over the tsunami support package. Even the first major bilateral agreement under this new era, the Lombok Treaty, was largely motivated by an event that turned into a crisis, which was the granting of temporary protection visas to a group of Papuans. And there's no doubt 
I think that the decision only fueled Indonesian distrust of Australia's intentions towards the Papuan region that had grown more acute after East Timor. Even SBY, who in democratic Indonesia could not ignore popular opinion like Suharto might have, responded pointedly by withdrawing Indonesia's ambassador. And the risk at the time was that relations would slide back to the tensions of earlier years of reformasi. Mm. Yet, by November that year, the two nations had concluded and signed the Lombok Treaty, which was to become the first of a series of agreements and arrangements that have emerged in the years since, which have systematised the bilateral relationship. The Lombok Treaty remains in force to this day, and various subsequent arrangements, such as the Defence Cooperation Agreements, have then reinforced it. As Bill said... It became, quote, a sort of foundational document for a lot of cooperation, not only in military and police matters, but across the board in customs, immigration, fisheries cooperation and so on. Even the 2014 Joint Understanding document, which emerged from the spying controversy of that year, was essentially in the spirit of the Lombok Treaty and its general principles. And while... More recent agreements, such as the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership, the 2 plus 2 meetings, and the IASEPA emerged under different leaders and because of quite extraneous motivations. As Gary Quinlan noted, they were built on the foundations that SBY did so much to put in place. They are, in part, grounded in the effort that he, along with Foreign Ministers Hasumiri Yuda and Martin Adagawa, made towards reshaping official and for that matter, popular Indonesian perceptions of Australia and its value as a partner. And the result is a relationship that has become far more about managing process than managing crisis. As Greg Moriarty put it so well in talking about the critical importance of close personal ties between ministers and leaders, these processes and the connections that come with them have enabled the two countries to deal with periodic jolts, several of which we've had since 2006, and which we're bound to have into the future. So I think a strong case can be made for the argument that there was in fact a sixth critical moment in that period, and arguably the most important of them all for the relationship over the last 23 years, and that was SBY's election in October 2004. And that is irrespective of how people might rate Yudhoyono's 10 years in office and Bill for One offers some perceptive assessment of the achievements and shortcomings that I think many people both in Australia and Indonesia would share of SBY's tenure. And the series also touched on another theme that Australians need to have a better understanding of when it comes to Indonesia, and that is Papua. Papua. Yes, and I can assure you that one of the key messages that any Australian diplomat, not just an ambassador, will invariably have to stress in Indonesia is that Australia unequivocally supports Indonesian sovereignty in that region. Which doesn't mean, as Bill said, Australians shouldn't express views on human rights and other issues associated with the Papuan provinces, because those issues are real and serious. So Aceh was, in effect, gave me one of the things that I could talk with SBY about early on in my time. Papua was a much less happy issue. The second thing I said to him when I presented credentials was that without any doubt, 
we would have dealings about Papua because that was the nature of democracy in Australia and interest groups who had their own views about things and indeed the Australian government's views from time to time about human rights and other issues. But I, I told him that he could be absolutely assured that Australia had a strong interest in the territorial integrity of Indonesia. That absolutely, certainly and forever would apply to the Papuan provinces. And Greg Moriarty made the same point. I think Indonesia's future success as a united, stable country does depend in some ways on how it reconciles the various cultural, ethnic, religious communities that it has within its borders. And at some times, the authority of Jakarta has been seen as suppressing local aspirations, economically exploitative, culturally insensitive at best, and sometimes quite harsh in terms of dealing with some of these local expressions. But I think, from my perspective, there is a sense of Indonesianness that applies across the country, in some places stronger than others, but I genuinely believe, personally believe, that a united, stable, prosperous Indonesia is best for the people of that country as well as for Australia and Indonesia's other neighbours. How the formula and the ebbs and flows of politics that allow it to achieve that unity while allowing appropriate vent to some of these aspirations that that is going to be an ongoing work for the leadership of Indonesia I think for many many years to come but it is incumbent upon Australians to understand Indonesian sensitivities on this issue and the complexities on the ground and to avoid simplistic analyses of the kind that Greg challenged I've not accepted the view that somehow the situation in eastern Indonesia can be characterised as Javanese colonialism. I just do not accept that. I've been in places in Papua where I've seen some of the most committed people to Papuan welfare are Javanese. People working in hospitals, people working in NGOs, people working, and not just Javanese, people from all over Indonesia seeking to make the lives of Papuans better. Certainly, you can point to the opposite as well. Indonesia abroad. From Aspie's perspective, a major theme is Indonesian foreign and strategic policy. And as Bill pointed out, SBA not only made a difference when it came to Indonesia's relationship with Australia, but also in how it generally viewed its place and role in international affairs. Look, I think the starting point has to be a feeling of confidence that began to demonstrate itself as a result of Indonesia's transition to becoming a pretty well-functioning democracy, not perfect by any means, but that was a foundational issue for SBY. He did his doctorate in the United States. He was essentially an outward-looking president, and so I think he brought, you know, after some dark periods and then some pretty chaotic periods, he brought a pretty stable approach to, to regional and international diplomacy. I think that confidence really manifested itself in the way in which Indonesia approached things like membership of the G20, approached 
its renewed leadership role within ASEAN and approached other issues. I've mentioned regional cooperation with Australia on issues like counter-terrorism and so on. SBY strongly directed that sort of effort. And to him, it was a really positive thing that Indonesia was there showing a lead. It didn't always amount to very much. They had ambitions to do something, for example, about the Israel-Palestine conflict. That came to nothing because essentially they didn't put enough sort of hard work into establishing a proper process that would get them anywhere. But there's no doubt that SBY had his own view and was ready to stand up for it on things, for example, like Australian and other membership of the East Asia Forum. There'd been opposition to that. SBY was on side for his own reasons. And as Greg said? Well, of course, throughout that period, Indonesia continued to pursue its free and active foreign policy. President Yudhoyono, I think, was motivated in some ways to do some things differently. He was conscious that Indonesia's position in ASEAN had been displaced a little, not displaced by another state, but Indonesia had withdrawn into itself a little. And so he was keen to reassert an Indonesian leadership role in ASEAN. Uh, Martin Natalagawa was the foreign minister. He worked with President Yudhoyono to develop an Indonesian concept of dynamic equilibrium, which was pursued with some enthusiasm, not always uniformly, but it was interesting to see how that played out. Indonesia was keen to assert a leadership role, but it was also very conscious of the great tectonic changes in, I think, strategic alignment in the region and wished to respond to these in a way which was not confrontational. So the concept of dynamic equilibrium was designed to allow power shifts in the region to occur so long as they did not result in friction. So it was uh, how to accommodate these things where Indonesia would play a role. But that's easier to say than to do. And I think President Yudhoyono still found it quite difficult to reassert that Indonesian role in ASEAN that had been lost, in my view. There were challenges in ASEAN on a couple of occasions where Foreign Minister Natalagawa was, at President Yudhoyono's request, got very heavily involved in trying to re-establish a consensus within ASEAN. And Foreign Minister Natalagawa and the President both would say, ASEAN cannot claim centrality if it is not prepared to earn it and to deserve it. And I think that that is... Well, they were conscious of the need for Indonesia to actually deliver. But the key point is that Indonesia's notions about regional strategic affairs differ from ours. And we always need to remember this. As John said... The prime example of this is that they simply don't see the issue of China and the West in the same way as we do. They have their own preoccupations with China. Believe you me, they want to stay independent, but they have a view that they want to go about it in a different way to the way we do, and the Americans, Japanese, and even the Indians. And if we don't understand that perspective and work with them on that perspective, our diplomacy will not do nearly as well as it should. I don't want to say it'll fail, but it will let us down. 
And similarly, Greg makes this point. I think it's important to understand that Indonesia will remain in some ways ambivalent about Western power. It certainly appreciates its relationships with Western countries, including Australia, the United States. It seeks balance, but it won't necessarily share the same view. Australia is much more comfortable with a balance of power in the Indo-Pacific, which has existed in large part since the Second World War, although there'd be some in Southeast Asia who would who would have a different view about the benevolent nature of the regional order. And many Indonesians will be more ambivalent about that. They will certainly want stability and balance. But our interests in Indonesia's will often overlap, but not always. And we need to appreciate that they will have a different worldview and they will continue to hold those perspectives quite deeply. But we should look to cooperate wherever we can. On the Quad, for example, Gary's words are important. If you look at their attitude to the Quad, it is, well, we could inevitably never join something like the Quad. And they do worry that the Quad might become a little bit too angular and um, elbowish and muscular in some way. But um, they think the way it's developing and its existence is probably a good thing for equilibrium and resilience in the region, Um, particularly since the Quad is now focused in functional areas like COVID recovery, climate change, emerging technologies. Um, They see the advantages because this is what they've wanted. They want countries like ourselves and others to step up and give them alternatives, options um, that they can choose from in how they're going to develop themselves and who they're going to be partnered with in the future. But at the same time, there are parallels in our view of the region and opportunities for partnership. The other factor is what are called minilaterals, as you know, other countries, small groupings. You've got Australia, um, uh, India and Indonesia have agreed a trilateral relationship. We'll focus on um, uh, COVID relief and uh, maritime cooperation, particularly as you move towards the Indian Ocean and those areas that come through the transept into the oceans with Indonesia. Indonesia's got um, minilateral arrangements with uh, India and Japan. So there's a, a fabric of strategic relationships which are all about regional resilience backed in by a stronger ASEAN, and Indonesia has been pushing the centrality of Uh, ASEAN and the Indo-Pacific outlook that they've developed on that, which was essential for them to do. The interesting thing about that, by the way, is it articulates the same principles that we've written in our foreign policy, white papers, defence white papers and everything else. It's actually the same principles. Inevitably, um, it's a bit different in how it casts them, uh, the implementation. So there are a lot of positive things there which... um, are good in terms of the strategic alignment. We're now talking to us with the Indonesians a lot, lot more, a lot more candidly about everybody else. And it's important to register the fact that Gary made these remarks just before the AUKUS announcement, which has had some implications for our bilateral security relationship. But I think his broader points still remain. The future of Australia-Indonesia relations. And this leads us to the question we asked all of the former ambassadors, which was, how should Australia deal with Indonesia from this point on? And several key elements to this were highlighted again and again. 
The first being that Australia needs to put more effort into the relationship than ever before and to do so with respect as a guiding principle. As John said... It's a question of uh, putting you know, more political energy into it. My sense now is we're putting a lot of political energy into the alliance, into our relations with Japan and India, and that's for strategic reasons. But I think we'd make a bad mistake if we didn't put the equivalent amount of energy into Southeast Asia, which is, after all, the area of contestation between the West and China. And I think you know, we need to take note of that. And Indonesia, of course, is central to Southeast Asia. The key message is that we need to turn up more. Because now there is a sense, well, where is Australia? And particularly if we really are going to be able to implement the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership in particular, if it's to have any meaning, we can't let it drift. And we can't afford to come across as arrogant and blasé about the relationship, as David said. We seem to believe that the Indonesians do nothing but think about Australia the whole time. It's just nonsense, you know. If you're the president, I remember Yudiano saying this when he was the president, going through the list of issues that he had to deal with, you know, tackling poverty, tackling corruption, dealing with the military, dealing with problems in Papua, dealing with this and the other thing. A million things that, that as president of Indonesia, had to do. And Australia was about, you know, 50th on the list there. And as Greg reminded us, that doesn't mean we have always to agree with Jakarta. The simple fact is, often we won't. We should combine empathy and understanding with a clear-eyed assessment of our interests and values vis-à-vis those of Indonesia. Well, I think it is very important for Australians, more Australians, to try and understand Indonesia, its history, its culture, its place in our strategic environment. I would say we need to have empathy, but we should remain very clear-eyed about the prosecution of our interests. To empathise does not mean that one necessarily sympathises or agrees. Again, on a number of issues, it's important to have respectful, deep conversations with the Indonesian leadership, but we will not share a world view. We are very different countries. But we should look to cooperate where we have common interests. And I think that in future years, geostrategically, there will be some areas where we have increasingly common interests. But we shouldn't seek to pretend that there won't be areas where we have differences. I think we need to be pragmatic and patient. And that leads to another key message, which is that Australians have to educate themselves more about their neighbour and the Australian government should restore funding and support for Indonesian studies, including Bahasa Indonesia, as part of that. Well, I think the first thing, and this is a view that I have about Australia's dealings with Asia generally, is the Australian population needs to be a lot more educated about Asia. That is a a serious deficiency now. I mean, we have dropped off our knowledge of Asia dramatically in the last 30 or 40 years. And that in itself means we basically pay more attention to the country. It's getting Australians to focus on the immediate horizon, you know, the immediate region. It's, it's absolutely crucial. We don't do that. 
nothing like enough. It's all about China and the US right now. And we need to get back to the reality of, you know, what is happening in our neighbourhood. So, first of all, the best thing we could do for the Indonesia for Indonesia is basically educate Australians about Indonesia. When it comes to practical aid and other support, we should focus, as John put it, quote, in the areas where we have real expertise and where we can help them, not so much through donations of huge amounts of money, but through really sensible and focused exchanges. And as he and others identified, these should range from agriculture and water to health and education. In light of COVID in particular, we should continue to do as much as possible, not just to help address the current pandemic, but prepare for future health contingencies through more support for the public health system. And there should be a greater effort on such areas as visitors' programs to make more influential Indonesians aware of what modern Australia is and has to offer, as well as other aspects of public diplomacy through such means as the Australia-Indonesia Institute. Compared to defence spending, the amounts we're talking about are tiny, but their impact would be substantial. And finally, another area that they've identified is we should be making Australia the preferred destination for Indonesian students. As Gary put it, quote, we need to be the trusted partner on all of that and research and collaboration. So I hope all of that is of some interest to listeners. It's a lot to take in. It's, I think, for me, as I said before, an interesting revelation. There is much to do plainly in the Australian-Indonesian relations, and it won't be easy. There will always be issues between two countries that are so dissimilar and yet so proximate. But I think both Hillary and I would hardly agree that nothing really is more important to Australian international affairs in the current circumstances than a constructive, respectful relationship between our two nations. There are many other things in the world we need to worry about, but surely there is none that is more important to get right. I would absolutely agree with that, David. And I think this podcast has been a great opportunity for us to look at the details, but then also step back to look at these bigger pictures and to figure out from there how best to go forward. Thanks, Hilary. <laughs> Thanks so much, David. That's all we have time for today on Policy, Guns and Money. We look forward to bringing you another episode soon. Thanks for listening.